It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bot, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bot with today's complete story. Well, to tell you what, Rich, there are a lot of important issues of our day, that is for sure, but what now? What now comes to your mind as the most important issue we should really be thinking about? Well, this Sunday is National Sanctity of Human Life Day. 44 years since Roe versus Wade. And you know, Ronald Reagan, it was Ronald Reagan that declared the third Sunday in January as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because that's the closest one to coincide with the actual Roe versus Wade anniversary. Isn't that interesting that we should have a designated day called Sanctity, Sanctity of Human Life. And, and be brought thereby to think about it. And that surely is worth thinking about. Now, you heard President Barack Obama give his farewell speech in Chicago, didn't you? And watch that very carefully. It was I very, watched it on the television, actually, yes. Actually, folks, uh, if, you, if you just listen very, very carefully, uh, it was very emotional. It was very emotional. You've got to understand this is a man who started out as a little boy. And we won't go into all of that where he did start. Uh, But then to rise to be the president of the United States. But the thing I was thinking of is not one time, not one time did he mention God. Listen to me, folks. Not one time did he mention God. And you see a person who is raised from being a child and all the way through their adult years to never really acknowledge God and what all that means. The only thing they have left is government. The only thing they have left then is for the government to do it. Now, listen, folks, I want you to remember this. And, Rich, you didn't know I was going to put this in here, but Thomas Jefferson in 1776, because President Obama was going back through Americans' history, what makes America great? What makes America exceptional? what makes America what it is. Not that it's perfect. Not that it ever was perfect. But Thomas Jefferson said these words, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Isn't that something? Now, he went on to say in 1781, that would, let's see, that would be five years later. Uh, He said, and can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? Thomas Jefferson, 1780. 81. Once again, not a perfect person. But this was the driving force that made the American ideal be so exceptional among the nations of the world. Right. Well, it's the recognition that our rights come from our Creator and that governments are ordained to protect those rights, not to give those rights which they can take away, but to protect those rights which are given by God. Yeah. So, folks, we're going to get very basic, aren't we? We're going to talk about life, for goodness sakes, the sanctity of human life Sunday. Now, Abraham Lincoln, and he was struggling, of course, with the issue of slavery. 
he was struggling with the issue of slavery. By the way, here, here is a, a quote from Lincoln. He said, why are you so careful, so tender of this one wrong and no other? You will not let us do a single thing as if it was wrong. Does that sound like the subject of abortion or Planned Parenthood or anything else today? Let's not talk about that. Well, this is what Lincoln said on 1860, March 6th, uh, in a speech he gave in New Haven, Connecticut. Listen to this, folks, because he was struggling, you know, to try and get the people to stop and think uh, about the issue of slavery and all of its implications. And he said, what we want and all we want is to have with us the men who think slavery is wrong, but those who say they hate slavery and are opposed to it, yet act with the Democrat Party, where are they now when we need them? He goes on to say, let us apply a few tests. You say that you think slavery is wrong, but you denounce all attempts to restrain it. Is there anything else you think is wrong that you are not willing to deal with as a wrong? Why are you so careful, so tender of this one wrong and no other? You will not let us do a single thing as if it was a wrong. There is no place where you allow it to even be called wrong. Uh, uh, we must not call it wrong in the free states because it's not there. And we must not call it wrong in the slave states because it is there. We must not call it wrong in the politics because that is uh, bringing um, uh, morality into politics. And we must not call it wrong in the pulpit because that is bringing politics into the church. We must not bring it into the tract society or other societies because there is no single, there is no such suitable place and there is not a single place, according to you, where this wrong can r properly be called wrong. And now we're going to be talking about a wrong that the church in America has been tolerating, the politicians in America have been tolerating, the society in America has been tolerating for a long, long time. There was a congressman who is deceased now, but not that many years ago, Henry Hyde. He was a congressman from Illinois. And um, when he passed away, the Speaker of the House had these words to say about Henry Hyde from Illinois. Uh, the Speaker of the House said, What often struck me most about Henry was his keen sense of our nation's history and of the gifts bestowed on our republic by the Founding Fathers, whose actions and deeds are never far, were never far from his mind. Um, the Speaker of the House went on to say in his statement, In this respect for the institutional integrity of the House of Representatives, Henry, let me turn the page here, Henry took second place to no one. He was forceful advocate for maintaining the dignity of the House of Representatives and for recognizing the sacrifices and the struggle members make while in its service. Indeed, when Henry Hyde spoke in committee or on the House floor, members of both sides of the aisle listened intently and they learned, period, end of quotes. Folks, we're going to hear a speech by Congressman Henry Hyde when he was alive. 
and he brought it on the House floor, the House of Representatives in Washington. I want you to ponder who who has the convictions, the strength of what is right and what is wrong to stand in Washington, uh, in the Capitol, and on the House floor and say these words. This is how strongly Congressman Henry Hyde felt about the issue of life. Here is his speech. Mr. Speaker, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Hyde, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The gentleman from Illinois is recognized for 15 minutes. I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people. And it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, in his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, <clears throat> Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist Raskolnikov say, man can get used to anything, the beast. That we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered, and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. <clears throat> we were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture and baby torture at that if we can't, what's become of us? We're all incensed about ethnic cleansing. What about infant cleansing? There's no argument here about when human life begins. The child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive, unmistakably human, and unmistakably brutally destroyed. The justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will. Well, if you still believe that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby and the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child, or in this instance, a four-fifths born child. That child, whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this House. To deny those rights is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual, it betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. 
The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, was interviewed by the American Medical Association. In so doing, he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies. How would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure? Quoting Dr. Koop, question, in your practice as a pediatric surgeon, have you ever treated children with any of the disabilities cited in this debate? Have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes, indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele, where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things such as the chest being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question, and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives. In fact, the first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele, much bigger than her head, went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective. 80% are elective. And he admits to over 1,000 of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect. Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions he performed because the baby had a cleft lip. Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has su survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. 
And he said, the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity? If we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born, we all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons. Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold, the coldness of self-brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia. Advocates of partial birth abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists, and they said this impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia, it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. And partial birth abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy, because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century, is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things to be disposed of? If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and, maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment, why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter of the innocents was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror, 
And while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental, and we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms. And the queen of all euphemisms is choice, as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby. Now, we've talked so much about the grotesque. Permit me a word about beauty. We all have our own images of the beautiful, the face of a loved one, a dawn, a sunset, the evening star. I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love, and a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity when we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it. We need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate. Let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. And I yield back the balance Mr. of my Chairman, time. Will you yield? Oh, folks, that was a former congressman, Henry Hyde from Illinois. <clears throat> now he passed away. Uh, in November of 2007. But you see, his his words continue on because that's the way truth is. Uh, you cannot deny truth. You can ignore it. You can turn your face away from it. You can try and not think about it. But truth remains. And it's the decision between life and death when you choose to destroy the life of a child. And, and human life is created in the likeness and image of God. What a perfect opportunity for the pastor in your church to mention and speak about the sanctity of human life in the likeness and image of God this Sunday, Sanctity of Human Life and, Sunday. And you know, Rich, I was thinking of so many that we know. Uh, Dr. Alveda King, she's Martin Luther King's niece, and, uh, and she had many abortions. And then she came to know the Lord. She came to turn her life over to God, and she's one of the strongest pro-life speakers in the nation. And people should know that if they've had abortion, God forgives. Uh, we, we worship and serve the Lord who forgives and the Lord who loves people and the Lord who died for people uh, that they might live. So let's not, let's not worry in our churches uh, that we cannot bring up the subject of abortion, because somebody in that congregation probably had one or two or three or four. I don't know. I don't know. But old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And when the light turns on, the darkness automatically retreats. I want to just read something here uh, from an author many years ago. I've had this in my in my uh, pages, in my little stuff that I dig through every once in a while. It meant so much. Uh, let's see. Uh, his name was Thomas Lynch. And uh, he said, If we live in a world where birth is suspect, 
where the value of life is relative and death is welcomed and well-regarded, then we live in a world vastly more shameful, abundantly sadder, and even more perilous than all of the primitive generations of our species before us who were sufficiently civilized to fill with the wonder at the birth of new life and dance with the living and weep for the dead. Rich were all going through life from beginning until end. The question is, do we care? Do we value life and, uh, and support each other as we're walking through this? Or do we start thinking of children as things, uh, th little throwaway things if we don't want them? so on and so forth. My word, is there a church? Is there a church that would fail to take this so seriously? Because it's a part of America. And for many, many years, when are we going to wake up to reality? When are we going to see something for what it is and stop dodging around? Now, Rich, I want to bring this up and I want you to speak to it. Because we just had an election. There's going to be an inauguration, you see, right away. And uh, where would Hillary Clinton, for goodness sakes, have been on appointing a justice to the Supreme Court on the issue of life, on the issue of education for every child in the inner city and everywhere else? See, where would she have been in really supporting the things that are so important to really make a difference, to make a change? Uh, I don't think we even have to discuss where she would have been. But I want to talk to those people who say, well, I just couldn't vote for Donald Trump, and so I didn't vote for anybody. Well, shame on you. If you want to climb up into the bleachers of life and say, I have no, I have no stake in this outcome. No, no, no. You do the best you can. And I'll tell you, it's looking pretty good. Now, you see, there's going to be a, a justice of the Supreme Court who's going to be appointed very soon. So far, the man is keeping his promises. And it ought to make everybody rejoice. It ought to make everybody thank God that we seem to have a reprieve and can achieve decency, again, along with prosperity and all of the other things people care about. Well, I told people that I was voting for the hope of a pro-life Supreme Court. And uh, then when President-elect nominated his vice president, Mike Pence, 100% pro-life, it gave me great hope. Well, 100% Christian. And as I've, yes, as he said, I'm a Christian, I'm a conservative, and I'm a Republican. In that order. In that order. Yeah. And so Christian first. But he's a 100% pro-life rating. And so that's just a terrific encouragement. And then as I've seen the other uh, cabinet appointments that he's made, uh, so many of them are pro-life and so many of them are Christians. And of course, he made a very strong campaign promise to appoint a pro-life Supreme Court justice to replace Scalia, someone who appreciates and respects the original intent of the Constitution and the meaning of those words. And uh, I'm hopeful and prayerful that we'll get somebody like that, and, and not just one, but maybe two or three other appointments after that. So I'm hoping that we may get to see a pro-life Supreme yeah. Court in our lifetime. This is not the time for the church to be asleep. If the door of religious liberty continues to be held open by this administration, we pray that it will be, it is the obligation of the church to go through that door and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and boldly proclaim the Word of God 
God and apply it to our generation and to our nation and to preach it across the world. So anyway, that's why I love being involved in <laughs> hey, Christian radio. Hey, man, that'll preach. That'll preach. You were, you were really going on. Well, it's absolutely the truth, folks. Take it to heart. What good is it to have religious liberty if you don't use it? What good is it to have freedom if you don't use it? What good is it to live in America if you don't exercise your right as an American citizen and stand up tall on your own two feet and know who you're voting for and why? So I hope your pastor this Sunday, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, at least mentions the value of life as we're all created in the likeness and image of God as something worth protecting. All right. God bless you, Rich. I appreciate your being on the broadcast with us. Because I'm telling you, I'm fading quick. This is Dick Bott <laughs> with this chapter. The complete story is a public service, by the way. It always has been. And we'll see you later. 